we've almost have an evolutionary mismatch today when it comes to dealing with pain. We think that we can control it. We think that we can avoid it. And in that process, we even lose sight of what we care about and what's of value to us. And when we're caught up in trying not to have our pain, we miss so much about the rest of life. Welcome to Beyond Theory, a podcast powered by Meadows Behavioral Healthcare that brings you in-depth conversations with firsthand insights from the people on the front lines of mental health and addiction recovery. I'm David Condos, and today's guest is Outpatient Treatment Director Gene Ross, who sits down with me to discuss why our attempts to avoid pain are not only unsuccessful, but can also damage our mental health and lead us to substance use. So let's get out of the abstract and see how this applies in the real world. It's time to go beyond theory. Hi, I'm Gene Ross. I'm director of the Meadows Outpatient Center here in Dallas, Texas. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Gene. No, thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. So let's start with kind of your story, how you got into this world of recovery. I know, I know you've been a part of it for a long time. Sure. Well, I guess I would have to start back when I um, first began my career with Child Protective Services. And it was during that time that I learned that I didn't know much about human behavior at all. And so with that experience, I can remember this was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And back then, we didn't have the understanding of addiction that we do now. And so many of the families that I was working with that back then were struggling with addiction. And and we just really weren't armed with the right sort of interventions back then. And so uh, it was through my experience with Child Protective Services that I became interested in in and helping people who were struggling with addiction. And so you were seeing the addiction because that's the reason they were coming into the world of child protective services. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, the interventions we had back then were you go to therapy once a week and you get clean. And and of course, you know, we know now that it it's much more involved than that. And so it was through again, through that experience that I became interested in in working in the field and it and after leaving Child Protective Services, I went into private practice. And during that time, we had the treatment contract for Child Protective Services. And uh, we were seeing a lot of folks coming in for addiction. And then the other thing that happened during that period, we were seeing a lot of folks coming in that were struggling with sex addiction. And, and many of them, um, their sex addiction had led them into in offending behaviors. And so at that point, I was asked if I would um, consider working with folks uh, who uh, were struggling with problematic sexual behavior and went through all the requisite training for that. And for the next 15 years, I worked with folks uh, who were struggling with problematic sexual behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier. So a lot of that was like 
sex offenders, people on the registry, yes. which, I, which I think to the general public or even to people in the helping profession, that, that's like the outsidest of the outsiders, this, you know, cast off in the corner. So what, uh, what did you learn, like really being in there? You said for, for like 10 or 15 years? 10 or yeah. 15 years, yeah. So I think, of course, you know, we, we recoil when we think about uh, uh, someone hurting a child and hurting a child sexually. But I think what I learned through that experience were these were human beings too. And it was evident that they had come to those behaviors through histories of their own trauma and their own um, horrible experiences. So it was it was eye-opening, and, and at the same time, I think um, it was a, an experience that taught me that um, we all share in what amounts to the worst in human beings and the best in human beings. Yeah, like that full spectrum is exactly. in everybody. It manifests in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's interesting. You were saying that a lot of it is the same as addiction, same as anything else. It comes from the past, comes from trauma, and then it, it, it manifests in, in a certain way. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And so another thing I know we were talking about earlier is how this starting to work with addictions, how it kind of changed your view of addiction mm-hmm. and, and, you know, kind of coming from how a lot of people thought of it back then, sure. uh, you know, it was a moral failure. Yep. Okay. Could you describe kind of that journey so, for, so for I you? Think, I think back in during that period of time, I think we sort of approached addiction and sort of, well, it's a choice. It's a choice people make and they can just as easily choose not to drink or not to, to, um, to use substances. And, you know, it was, I think naively so um, we we just thought that uh, that people were making a choice and and of course in that context folks were losing their children and it was so hard for me to wrap my head around that how could someone choose their substance over their child if it's just a choice if then that, that seems choice. really bad on the surface exactly yeah, so there was more to it than that and of course as as we learned more and as I learned more about addiction, it, 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 it um, was, was evident that, that that wasn't the case at all, that if given the choice, people would have chosen their children. Right. Yeah. And so do you, do you feel like, like as you look back and you see that, that journey for you, kind of discovering that, learning more about it, do you feel like American culture has caught up to that? Do you feel like that's kind of a, a journey that a lot of people have gone on or is there there's still a lot of work left to do? That's a great question, David. I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think there's, there's somewhat of less stigma, I think, these days. I think we, we have a, a deeper understanding just in general that it's, it's much more than just someone choosing their uh, addiction. Uh, but I think there's still that stigma out there. Um, I can tell you um, many situations during my experience, my recent experience where people ha- have made statements like they should have known better or or they've, they've chosen this path. So I think there's still that, that sentiment. Yeah, so that's something that people are still fighting. I think so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I know another part of this journey for you was discovering some Buddhist principles. Yes. Could, could you tell us about kind of what got you introduced to that, why you're interested? I'd love to talk about this, David. So maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, I um, discovered Buddhism and I kind of consider myself an amateur Buddhist in a sense. I think uh, as we apply Buddhism to human behavior, it's really easy to see how we human beings turn away from our pain and trying to avoid or control our pain. And the, the irony in that is when we do that, that's where our suffering is. So the more we try to not have pain, the more we got it. But because we're going to have pain. We're, so it's that, inevitable. So if you're resisting, then that's that's where the struggle kind of hits you. It's inevitable. And, and I think our, our unwillingness to have pain goes way back in our evolutionary history. We've almost have an evolutionary mismatch today when it comes to dealing with pain. We, we think that we can control it. We think that we can avoid it. And in the process, we lose sight of what we care about and what we're passionate about and what gives us joy. And when we're struggling with pain, our world sort of collapses and our responses are rigid then. And our only focus is on running away or not having. And we miss so much more. So so it distracts from the rest of life. It distracts from the rest of life. And sometimes in that process, we even lose sight of what we care about and what's of value to us. And when we're caught up in trying not to have our pain, we miss so much about the rest of life. Yeah. And so what was it kind of when you when you first started learning about Buddhist principles, what, what was it that spoke to you about that specifically in, in this discussion? So, so often my clients would be coming in and of course the first question we therapists ask people is, why are you here? And the answer I would get was, oh, I don't want to be depressed anymore. And so as you know, we begin to do the work, it was very clear that the whole process of trying not to have depression increased depression. It increases our isolation. It increases our loss of joy. And because then you're just thinking about it like, oh, I'm depressed. Why am I still depressed? I don't want to be depressed. I'm failing at at not being depressed. So those are all away moves, if you will. And it's they're all in the in the service of avoiding our pain. And so what What we're trying to do with helping folks these days is we're trying to help them make room for their pain in the service of doing what they care about. Hmm. And so how can this avoidance of pain, how how does that end up affecting other areas of your life, like leading to addiction, Mm -hmm. leading to other issues? Well, I think addiction is probably uh, the best example of humans' avoidance of pain when folks are depressed or they're anxious or they've had trauma in their histories. Then the go-to response, and, and, and naturally so, is that we're trying to get away. And when you think about it, that probably worked in our history when we were on the Serengeti being chased by saber-toothed tigers. There's reasons that that's in our DNA. Absolutely. So here comes the evolutionary mismatch now. In the modern world, we're not being chased by saber-toothed tigers. We're being chased by negative emotions, memories, body sensations that we don't like and we try to avoid and we try to control. So it's, it's natural that 
one of the unhealthy ways people deal with that is to use substances in an effort to not have pain. Yeah. And so kind of looking at it from a clinical side or or a, a treatment side, what is a way that you can help people understand this concept, help them integrate that into their recovery, kind of understand that and then be able to implement it and, and enjoy kind of the benefits of, of letting go. Absolutely. So we're trying to help people recognize and get that that perspective, if you will, of being able to observe themselves and observe themselves moment to moment. Mindfulness is a very popular approach these days. And really all we're talking about with mindfulness is being able to show up in the moment with whatever is happening to us, whether we're in pain or, or, or not, but to show up in our actual experience. And so what we're trying to help folks do is to sort of step outside of language and cognition in the sense that now they're observing themselves. And, and in, so instead of saying, I'm depressed, the notion is I'm I'm noticing that I'm having a thought of depression. So there's a, a whole different yeah. perspective. So it there. perspective. It's, like, it's almost like you've accomplished a goal mm-hmm. of noticing, of being self-aware, of noticing what's going on with you. So it's it's not a failure that I'm depressed. It's a it's a achievement Absolutely. that I'm, I'm I'm doing some of this work. I'm noticing what's going on. Absolutely. With and so now our emotions become data. They tell us what we need to do. So rather than try to not have sad thoughts, for example, now we're able to notice those thoughts and again, to make room for those thoughts and then turn toward what we're passionate about, what we value, what we want our lives to stand for. And that's much more flexible than rigidly trying not to have. I always like the example, and this sounds terrible, but if there was a rat in a cage and we threw a cat in there with the rat, that rat's sole focus is going to be finding that tiny hole in the corner to the exclusion of everything else. Well, think about that. In in contrast, what if we dropped a food pellet in that rat's cage? The rat's going to look around much more flexibly responding in the actual moment rather than trying to get away. That's it, really it alters your perspective. About. It kind of puts the, puts the tunnel vision, the blinders on that you're, you're focused on, some, on something and missing other things. Absolutely. We miss our actual experience then, uh, which is much more fluid and, and uh, we're able to respond to in real time and moment to moment rather than up in our mindy sort of thoughts that are and by the way our minds are simply trying to help us mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's they're trying our minds are problem solving machines and they're always looking for a problem to solve I always like the the metaphor um, we look at a sunset in a different way we don't look at a sunset and try to figure out oh well the light's refracting here and that's why the color we look at a sunset in a completely different way so how do we help folks look at life as they do a sunset that's really what we're trying to do yeah to be able to have it in the moment again with whatever shows up What's maybe a piece of advice or recovery related suggestions that somebody is giving you that's kind of 
stuck with you or something that you that you offer to others? You know, I love the whole notion that we humans are imperfect and there's some spirituality in our imperfection. Our imperfection draws us closer together. When we share our true selves with each other, then there's connection. And so I think I think it's important in recovery to be able to show up just as you are. And uh, there's a spiritualness about being able to do that. And certainly when folks are are tied up in, in, in their addiction, they lose sight of their spirituality. And I think that may be the, the nub of it all in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what about like a, a resource, a book, something that you you keep going to again and again, mm-hmm. so, uh, something that's really stood the test of time for you? Two books. One is Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. That book, when I read that, was life-changing for me. And then the other one, and I, my copy of it is dog-eared. I've read it so many times, but The Spirituality of Imperfection is another, one of my favorite recovery books. And that one gets back to what you were just talking uh, absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think those two books meant so much to you why it spoke so much. Yeah, again, I think it, it comes down to just what we humans struggle with, and, and that is being able to have our pain, which is inevitable, and being able to make room for that pain and letting go of the fact that we need to be perfect, that we need to always show up um, without our our warts. And I think um, I think that's particularly important for for folks, particularly in early recovery, because there's so much shame involved uh, with addiction, and just to be able to to understand that we're not perfect. There's um, one of the most famous um, sayings in AA is that we're perfectly imperfect. And I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that kind of changed your perspective about yourself. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, that looking kind of big picture now, what if there was one thing you could change about addiction treatment, about behavioral health care, what might be one, one thing that you could, you could do if you could flip a switch? Oh, that's a great question. I think, I think access to treatment now is one of the biggest roadblocks we have now in our culture. And unfortunately, not everyone can, can afford treatment and can get the, the kind of treatment that they need. I, if, there was, if there was some magic way we could offer treatment to folks and it not be uh, a financial um, problem for people, that would be huge. Hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because if you, you have great treatment, but but people can't get it. Absolutely, that hurts me more than anything. Now is for someone to come and they want to get help, and they simply financially can't afford it. Um, that's something I struggle with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wrap up with this one for the general public. I know the conversation around addiction, mental health is is growing, becoming more part of kind of the social conversation. What would be one thing that you wish the general public understood about this, about about recovery, about about the whole thing? 
coming back to what we were talking about in the beginning, that there's still this stigma around addiction and that keeps so many people in their shame and keeps people from asking for help. If there was some way that we could change that dialogue and look at addiction in the same way that we do physical health issues, diabetes, cancer, those sorts of things, if we could come to that place where we understand that this is this is just as much of a of a healthcare issue that uh, physical issues are. I think that would be huge. Jean Ross is the director of outpatient services at the Meadows Outpatient Center in Dallas, Texas. You can find out more about Jean's team and what that program offers at meadowsiopdallas.com. To check out more episodes of this podcast and find all kinds of other resources and tools for Meadows Behavioral Healthcare, visit beyondtheorypodcast.com. Finally, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Beyond Theory.